Hello, and welcome to the Clinical Care Options Neuroscience Podcast Series, Rett's Syndrome, Today and Tomorrow. I'm your host, Dr. David Lieberman. I'm an instructor of neurology at Harvard Medical School and attending child neurologist at Boston Children's Hospital. With me today to provide a comprehensive overview of Rett's Syndrome is Dr. Jeffrey Newell, who is director of the Vanderbilt Kennedy Center and professor of pediatrics, pharmacology, and special education at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. Our learning objective for this podcast is to recognize the disease course milestones and diagnostic criteria for Rett syndrome. Before we begin, I have a quick housekeeping note. This episode is accredited for 0.5 AMA PRA Category 1 credit, ACPE contact hours, ANCC contact hours, and AAPA contact hours. After listening to this podcast, click on the link in the show notes to take the post-test and earn your CE or CME credits. All right, Dr. Newell, let's get started. To start off, tell us a little bit about the the historical nature about Rett syndrome, how it got its name, and uh, some of the clinical characteristics of the the disorder. Yeah, hi, hi, David, and uh, welcome, everyone. Rett syndrome is a disorder that was originally described by an Austrian pediatrician named Andreas Rett. And he had actually observed in his clinic two girls sitting waiting to be seen who had similar hand-wringing motions. And he thought it was interesting that they both had it. So he asked actually the people he was working with, his nurse, if there was other ones. And they did. They found a a series of, of individuals who had similar characteristics. And so he described this in 1969 in an Austrian weekly medical newsletter. And it really wasn't well recognized at that time. This was in German. But eventually, through the 70s into the early 80s, other people started noticing similar individuals who had this characteristic features. And so in 1983, Bengt Hogberg and colleagues published a paper in the Annals of Neurology describing 35 cases in Europe, primarily, of people who uh, had what they termed Rett syndrome. So they gave the eponym to uh, Dr. Rett, who had originally described it 15, 16 years before. And so that's sort of uh, where we got the name, and it's in the early 80s. And over time, people thought it might be a genetic disorder, and eventually in 1999, the genetic basis of most cases of Rett syndrome was discovered. But I think we'll come back and talk about that a little bit later in this podcast. Can you discuss for the listeners how a clinical diagnosis of Rett syndrome is made? What are typical or atypical features and what are exclusion criteria? The key thing about Rett syndrome, thinking about what the disorder is, is that you know it's a severe neurodevelopmental disorder that primarily affects girls. And it has a very characteristic disease pattern. And the classic uh, disease pattern is that you have a child who is born after a normal pregnancy and delivery, uncomplicated, without any issues, and generally seems to be doing very well through the first six of months of life, gaining skills, learning to potentially sit, hold their head, maybe starting to babble. And typically, there isn't any significant concern, although that people might reflect back that they seemed a little floppy, or maybe they were a little bit too good of a baby. But then between about six and 18 months, we start seeing 
more developmental delay. You start maybe not making the mile, you know, reaching certain developmental milestones quite on target. You had a year old, you're, the child's not quite walking yet or has other things that is, it's oftentimes not dramatically delayed, but starting to be noticed. But notably, about 18 to 30 months on average, but between one and four years, we can say there's a regression and there's a loss of skills. And specifically, there's a loss of hand skills and there's loss of acquired spoken language. Now, sometimes this is a complete loss, but it doesn't have to be. It can be, you know, a qualitative change. A child might have been speaking in multiple words and now doesn't speak in words, but or maybe only has one word or just babbles now. So that's a loss. Same with language. Affected individuals also develop difficulty walking and have a characteristic gait that we consider to be an apraxic or ataxic gait. Or some people don't learn to walk at all or completely lose the ability to walk. Finally, they have repetitive hand movements that are fairly characteristic of the disorder. Now, this regression phase is time limited, and it sometimes can happen very fast. Sometimes it takes months. The regression in these different skills might occur at different times, but it doesn't continue um, as opposed to like a neurodegenerative condition where you might have relentless loss of skills. It actually stabilizes, and then individuals enter what we call the pseudo-stationary or plateau uh, stage. And that typically, you know, we think about that running from about three to four years old until maybe into uh, teen years. And so we don't see further loss and we might see subtle improvements in some of the skills. During this time is oftentimes where we see some of the characteristic clinical features that can be present in Rett syndrome, such as seizures or other things like that that we can talk about. And finally, there's a late motor deterioration stage, we call it, that is kind of in the teens to young adulthoods, where we see the stiffening of the muscles and some more onset of Parkinsonian features and more difficulty initiating and moving as well. And some people even lose the ability to walk at that time. Let me ask you, from your Annals of 2010 paper, Revised Diagnostic Criteria Nomenclature, there's a distinction made between those who have classic Rett syndrome. So they have the those four main features, the partial or complete loss of acquired purposeful hand skills, the partial or complete loss of acquired spoken language, the uh, dyspraxic or absent gait, and then the stereotypic hand movement. So fulfilling those four features gives you the diagnosis of classical or typical Rett syndrome. And um, if you have uh, two of the four main criteria, but uh, five out of 11 supportive criteria, uh, you could meet uh, the diagnosis of atypical Rett syndrome. And those supportive criteria are breathing disturbances when awake, bruxism when awake, uh, impaired sleep pattern, abnormal muscle tone, peripheral vasomotor disturbances, scoliosis or kyphosis, growth retardation, uh, small cold hands and feet, inappropriate laughing and screaming spells, uh, diminished response to pain, and intense eye communication and eye pointing. I'd like to talk a little bit about the, the diagnosis of classic or typical RET, which as you described, it meets all four of these major criteria. And then the diagnosis of atypical RET that still has the disease pattern when has a does have a, a loss of skills and a stabilization. 
and I think that it's important to think about why why there would be a typical or a classic and an atypical. And and you know, part of it is that I think it has to do with prognosis or you know expected aspects. And we know a lot about people who meet all the criteria in our classic red syndrome. So that gives us a sort of a tighter grouping of things of of people who we have more knowledge and experience. And for the atypical, you know, really it kind of pans out that there's a lot of similarities of people with atypical and typical red. Really, the atypical, though, oftentimes are people who are more severe and maybe have been really more affected from early in life. So they didn't have an apparently normal development at first. So they're more, more severely affected than most of the people with classic red. On the other hand, are people who are much less severely affected, might have much better spoken language. They might have what's called preserved speech variant, where they have actually more regained speech. A lot of times these people still have lost speech, but then they regain and now they might speak in sentences. So really, the atypical group kind of um, are on either end of the extremes for the typical. That's kind of a lot of how it pans out. And I, I, you know, I really appreciate that with this uh, description, we we're able to give clinical diagnosis of Rett syndrome that's uh, independent of whatever uh, genetic change underlies that this disorder. Can you want to tell me a little bit about some of the genetics behind uh, Rett syndrome? Yeah, in terms of talking about the genetics of, of Rett syndrome. So it was suspected that it was a genetic disorder in 1999. Hudazogby and colleagues identified mutations in the gene methyl CPG binding protein, or MECD2, as being uh, present in the majority of people with Rett syndrome. Now, one thing that's important about this and this discovery is that most of the cases are what we call de novo mutations. So neither mom nor dad has it in their, in their genome. It was a new mutation, probably formed during spermatogenesis in the most, most of the cases. And it was a one-time thing. And it's important because it isn't families in general. Most of the time, it's a new thing and it happens spontaneously. There are rare cases where there are familial cases and they'll have multiple affected individuals in the family. In fact, some of the key families that were used to identify the gene, they had a, a child with Rett syndrome who had a brother who was severely affected right from birth. And that was the first indication that there are boys who have MECD2 mutations. So the genetic cause of most cases was identified, as I said, mutations in this MECD2 gene. However, even with that knowledge, even people who meet all the criteria for classic Rett syndrome, still about 3 to 5% of people do not have a disease-causing mutation in this MECD2 gene. So there are people who clinically meet this criteria who do not have a mutation. So you don't need to have the mutation to meet the criteria. Similarly, there are now we've learned there are people who have mutations in this MECP2 gene who do not have Rett syndrome. Good example is the rare family cases where you have an asymptomatic mother who's a carrier. So he, she has the mutation, but she does not manifest the disease at all. But additionally, we found individuals who have other neurodevelopmental disorders or have autistic-like features who never had a regression, don't have these sort of skill losses, but do have mutations in MECP2. So you can have a mutation in MECP2 and not have Rett syndrome. And so that's why 
it's important to make that distinction. Within the atypical category, we've always recognized that the percentage of individuals who have mutations in MECP2 is far lower. It's not 95%, it's maybe 65 to 75% of people who have atypical Rett syndrome have mutations in MECP2. And yeah, in 2010, when we had the revised clinical criteria guideline, we discussed some specific variant forms that was at the time people were just really identifying things that are called like an early onset seizure variant or a congenital variant. And it was being discovered in the late 2000s that a lot of the people who had this early onset seizure variant of Rett syndrome had mutations in a different gene called CDKO5. And similarly, people who had this diagnosis of congenital variant of Rett syndrome had mutations in a different gene called FOXC1. In the last 12 years since that criteria was published, you know, we've really recognized that people who have mutations in CDKL5 have a really a distinct neurodevelopmental disorder called CDKL5 deficiency disorder. And similarly with people with FOXG1 mutations, rather than having RET variants, they have their own distinct disorders, which clinically overlap with RET syndrome in many ways. But I think it's important just to recognize them as their own disorders. And finally, you know, like I said, since 5% of people who have Rett syndrome do not have a mutation in MIP2, I think it's important to consider further genetic analysis to make sure they don't have a mutation in some other gene. Whether they have typical, atypical, or an MECP2-related disorder, what are some of the other symptoms and uh, complaints, let's say, that families might bring to you at uh, the time of uh, their clinic visit? What are the families uh, most concerned about? Yeah, you know, so in Rett syndrome, there are a number of clinical issues that come up, and they they come in a number of domains. Obviously, as we mentioned, these functional skills with loss of hand skills and and language and difficulty walking are issues that families are concerned about. They'd like to see improvements. And, you know, a lot of our care is guided towards improving these skills using physical therapy or occupational therapy or communication therapy to try to improve their ability to communicate since they lost that using augmentative and communication methods. But in addition to those loss of skills, there are issues that come up clinically. Um, People with Rett syndrome have marked trouble chewing and swallowing. They have a lot of issues throughout their GI system in terms of reflux and slow transit, delayed gastric emptying. Constant, severe constipation. So these are all issues that become very important. And, you know, these are, especially the constipation, families, caregivers oftentimes say this is a significant issue and they need to have it addressed. With this difficulty chewing and swallowing, a lot of people also have a lot of trouble with nutritional support. And so a number of people with Rett syndrome are very underweight and short and they have growth failure. And so this is something that, that is important that we have to be thinking about and addressing. And a significant number of people with Rett syndrome, because of their oral motor dysfunction, need to have gastrostomy tubes for support. Beyond that, you know, there is a, a host of neurological issues. And besides the repetitive hand movements, they do have other movement abnormalities, sometimes have chorea, clearly have a lot of dystonia, tone issues. These can lead to contractures. They have marked increased risk of seizures. Um, nearly everybody with Rett syndrome has seizures at some point in their life. 
So that's a major issue for us to be um, addressing, especially as a neurologist. In addition, they have scoliosis and other orthopedic issues that have to be considered and monitored. Finally, in just mentioned they have a number of physiological and autonomic changes. So people with Rett syndrome oftentimes have unusual breathing patterns, especially when they're awake with periods of breath holding and even cyanosis and, and or hyperventilation. These mostly improve when they do go to sleep, but they might still be present. Similarly, they have uh, uh, vasomotor disturbances where their hands and feet might be very cold and they may come in bursts. Sometimes it goes the opposite way. They'll be warm and flushed. And they have unusual pseudomotor issues, sweating, where they don't necessarily sweat well to regulate heat, but instead have sort of nervous sweat on the palms of their hands and soles of their feet. And I think, you know, we have to think about uh, over time the uh, monitoring different changes in their clinical features that will evolve over time. Yeah. How is it that the... Um... MECP2 uh, gene changes, you think, lead to some of these other systemic problems? I mean, maybe going back a little bit to uh, some of the functions of the MECP2 gene in terms of its transcriptional regulation. Yeah, so the MECP2 gene, it binds methylated cytosines, which is on the DNA. And methylated cytosines are considered an epigenetic mark. So it is a protein that works in the nucleus, it works to bind DNA and regulate gene transcription very broadly. And it's expressed basically in every cell in the body, but it's expressed at much, much higher levels in the brain and, and really in the neurons themselves, in the nervous system, neurons, uh, both within the central nervous system and even peripherally. And there's evidence from animal models that the bulk of the features that we observe, the clinical issues we observe in Rett syndrome, arise from MECP2 dysfunction within the nervous system. So people have removed MECP2 only from the nervous system of mice, and they manifest pretty much all the same problems as if they didn't have the gene in any cell in their body. Similarly, they could turn it on only in the nervous system. They seem to be pretty uh, normal mice then. So it seems that probably a lot of the features, even though they are broad and affect multiple organs, probably mostly arise from that nervous system control of activities. So even things like constipation probably are arising from the nervous system and the enteric nervous system not being coordinated uh, as it should and, and leading to slow transit and, and constipation. In the time we've had to understand the changes in MECP2 uh, in our RET patients. You know, we've seen at least over 200 identified mutations in the MECP2 gene. And I know there's, you know, eight more common uh, mutations, uh, four of which tend to be milder and four of which tend to be more severe. And I've always found it interesting that um, even when you take two girls around the same age uh, with the same uh, mutation type, they may uh, have variable clinical features. Some may have worse seizures than the other, and others may have worse GI features than the other. And, and uh, you know, we think maybe part of that problem may be due to variance in X chromosome inactivation, uh, so that there's normally kind of a 50-50 expression of a wild-type allele or a mutant allele, particularly in brain. We would expect that if there's a skew towards the wild-type expression, 
the MECP2 gene, you'd have a milder clinical phenotype and uh, vice versa. If it's skewed towards a more of the mutant expression, you would you could have a more severe clinical phenotype. Now, those are still kind of a proposed idea. And we also wonder whether there could be other genes that might be compensating for changes that provide either a milder clinical phenotype or a more severe clinical phenotype. Uh, so, you know, we'll have to see how that all plays out as we understand more of the genetic changes from MECP2. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up about you know, the genotype-phenotype relationship, you know, and, and yeah, there's lots of mutations, but these eight common hotspots that are recurrent mutations and account for about 65% of all people with Rett syndrome. And so, yeah, you know, we've done a lot to do genotype-phenotype relationships, and we can find clear relationships, but, you know, I always say that that is a relationship at the group level. Like, you can say, oh, this group, people who have this mutation, R168X, are more severe than people who have R133C, okay? But you can pick out individuals with an R with the severe mutation who are as mild as the mildest people with a mild mutation and vice versa. So it's not something that works on an individual level. And what you describe in your clinical experience is exactly it. You know, you see two people same age with the same mutation who are very, very different, right? They're very different. And you can't really make great predictions for a person based on their mutation. The group, yeah, but not a person. And yeah, the X chromosome inactivation, very skewing, probably does account for some of it. But, you know, the best data that was published quite a long time ago is, you know, it's about 10% of this variance accounted for. So you can you can find movement of severity based on changes in X chromosome activation, about 10% of it. But the the overall range where you see for a given mutation of how how variable it is is much more than that. So, like you were getting at, there are clearly other factors that are contributing to overall clinical issues that come up in people with Rett syndrome. One may be biological factors, like another genetic modifiers of some type. But there may be another ones we don't even appreciate what they are yet. Early therapies, or you know, other aspects like that. Do you use uh, other instruments to help with your assessments uh, clinically, or uh, do you find them more useful for research purposes? I'm very familiar with the various instruments that have been developed or being developed for Rett syndrome. And, you know, most of them have been developed and utilized within the context of clinical research, you know, either observational natural history studies or uh, clinical trials. Very few have been used regularly in a clinical setting, and I have not used them that much in a clinical setting. But I think, you know, with the experience with them, I think it's useful to start doing it. I'm starting to do that more in my, in my clinic using things that we had developed in the natural history study, like the revised motor behavior assessment to measure it every time somebody's there. We also I have been using more regularly a clinician uh, rating scale called the Clinical Global Impression of Severity, um, which we had developed Brett syndrome-specific anchors to try to have that more as something you'd apply in a clinical setting so you can reflect back later on what the score you gave previously was and if it's the same, the same, or it's changing. How about you, David? Do you find yourself using any of the rating scales routinely in clinical care? 
No, I mean, I I think they have their place. And I spend most of the clinic visit hearing the parents' concerns and trying to focus on those. I do think that the clinical global impression of severity is a fairly straightforward. That doesn't necessarily take much time. Yeah, but it's, it's really just your entire clinical assessment and exactly, it, exactly. formulating that opinion, right? Yeah. But, you know, for, for most of our patients, I think they're at least in their, you know, their pseudo stationary phase, which they're spending uh, the bulk of their lives and things are, are fairly stable. Individual things make, may get better or get worse, but overall their severity is pretty stable. Let me ask you a question here. Do you think that we're going in terms of uh, some potential treatments and, and needing to have identifiable MECP2 mutation as part of the treatment? Do you think that we will revise the way we make our diagnosis for red patients moving from uh, solely clinical grounds to maybe more genetic grounds? Because for those three or five percent of classic Rett syndrome patients that don't have an MECP2 mutation or the 25 to 40% of atypical Rett who don't have a MECP2 mutation, you know, we don't know how would treatment for an MECP2 specific disorder, how would that affect them? So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that um, it really is going to be heavily on what the nature of a proposed treatment is going to be, right? Obviously, if you have a proposed treatment that is a gene replacement therapy, you know, giving back a MECP2 gene, it wouldn't make a lot of sense to give that to somebody who doesn't have a mutation in MECP2, right? You'd only really give that back to somebody who has a mutation. If you're talking about a treatment that is not that linked to the genetic basis or the, you know, molecular issue, might imagine that it still could work in somebody even if they didn't have a MECP2 mutation, right? Right. So right. I think that that is um, the way I would think about it. Now, I think, though, one thing that I think is interesting and important, as we're in the era of people developing therapies, developing interventions, potentially developing interventions that are very tightly linked to the genetics and the biology, you know, there's a lot of thought and belief that the earliest intervention is going to be the most efficacious. It's going to work the best, right? We don't know this for sure, but I think it's a reasonably founded belief, you know, with neurodevelopment, if we can, if things are going awry, if we can intervene as early as possible, we hope that we'll see the maximal benefit. And I think that the biggest challenge is in Rett syndrome, if we want to push back and identify people who are going to have Rett syndrome, but before they regress, we have to think about what would that look like? How do we make that diagnosis in a period of time where maybe they only have slight or subtle developmental delays or subtle changes in how they are babbling or using their hands? Pretty subtle, only an expert's going to pick them up. I think it's an important problem that we're going to have to really dig into because I think there's going to, to begin interventions earlier. So we need to make sure we know we're really identifying people who would have gone on and regressed and would have gone on and have Rett syndrome, even if it's a year before they showed those things. Yeah. So we'll have to maybe develop some biomarkers that might help with prediction besides just having an MECP2 mutation. Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking at least overall, it looks like not everybody with Rett syndrome has microcephaly, what's called acquired microcephaly, meaning their head size was normal at birth, but then 
they fail to continue to grow at the same rate, so they fall off the growth curve. But even people who don't, a lot of them show movements off of different, you know, the normal trajectory that they were on, say, 50th percentile. Now they're down on the 25th percentile. So it may be, and that might be a biomarker, which is measuring the head carefully, repeatedly, and showing it not tracking the way it should, combined with a MP2 mutation. Then maybe these subtle changes like people in Europe have been observing from retrospective video analysis, children who, uh, before they regress, and looking again at these subtle changes in their vocal output and their hand skills, they didn't lose anything, but you can observe peculiarities in what they're doing that, you know, again, with a highly trained eye, you can pick it out. So maybe there's some combo of things like this that would allow us to get a better prediction. Uh, this six-month-old child who has an MP2 mutation is very likely to go on to have red. So we may do an, an advanced intervention that carries potential risk like gene therapy, but it might be worth it for the, that child who was going to go on to have red. Right. And other uh, ancillary tests we can do, like the, the resting state EEG and the visual evoked potentials and auditory evoked potentials are also things that we can, can follow and, and give us an idea of what the, the child's severity might be at, at earlier time points. Yep, that's right. Thank you very much for joining me today, Dr. Newell. That was a great overview of Rett syndrome. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. We hope this information has been helpful for your clinical practice. As a reminder to earn credit for this podcast, click on the link in the show notes and be sure to check back for more episodes in this series. Additional podcasts will cover current and emerging management options for Rett syndrome. Thank you very much for listening.